Um, it is good to see everybody again. Uh, I talked, um, what, in September, I guess it was, the last men's lunch, and talked about boredom. This is a, kind of a cousin, I guess I'd say, um, narcissism. Um, as a disclaimer at the beginning, it's not, a, it's not what, what, what clinicians, doctors, and others would, would describe as narcissistic personality disorder. So just putting that up to date, um, it's, not a, it's not that. It's the more uh, run-of-the-mill narcissism, just self-interest, self-consumption, self, uh, uh, just being, just navel-gazing, old-fashioned, I'm the most important thing in my life kind of idea. It's just, it's just sin is what we're going to be getting at today. And so I thought we would start with, in fact, the um, uh, same text, or at least the adjacent text to what we started with at uh, uh, in September, talking about boredom. Uh, great book in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, uh, probably the most, I might say, postmodern um, book in the Bible. Um, but the first part of chapter 2 in Ecclesiastes, I said in my heart, and I'll make a couple of comments because we're going to stay really close to the text today. Um, but but the, the writer of Ecclesiastes starts it, I said in my heart, and it's right there, that's what narcissists love to do. That's what we love to do is talk to ourselves in our heart and in our head and just kind of get this internal monologue going. And that's what he's doing. And he's starting out saying, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And then he responds to himself, but behold, this also was vanity. It's the great line, uh, the recurring line in Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, or it's sometimes called breath or vapor. I think for our purposes, we could think narcissism, just self-interest, rabid self-consumption. But behold, this also was vanity and narcissism. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? And I searched with all my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And he's going to continue and you can almost see the image I have is almost spiritual spina bifida, we could call it. Um, this idea of, of being bent in on ourselves, navel-gazing, and just kind of turning in further and further and further and being consumed with his own pursuit of pleasure. Um, and he says, uh, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted them in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest and the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any other who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of the kings and the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, many concubines and delight of the sons of men. I went to the University of Alabama. I was a Phi Gam. I was Phi Beta Kappa. I got into this company. I made it here. I made it there. I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained in me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. This is the life of a narcissist, the life of self-consumption. For my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, all was vapor, all was just gone in a puff a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So that's our text. It's a real uplifting text. It's the, it's, the, uh, it's the making and then the unmaking of a narcissist. It's the making and the un- unmaking of each one of us. That's going to be kind of the overarching theme 
today, this idea. So, at the outset, um, I'd like to, uh, to pause and take a point of personal privilege and welcome my father. He doesn't often get to be here with me. Um, uh, I would say he lives in Texas, but really he lives around the country as he and my stepmom the past several years have, uh, as I've told several of y'all at different points in time, have uh, uh, basically been full-time RVers. They're pulling back now a little bit. I was just telling the table. Uh, the RV is parked out in front of our house right now. I think Tatum, you drove up behind it on Monday when they were arriving into town. And as we were leaving, um, Dad served in the Marine Corps um, in the early 60s. One of the things I admire most about my father, his service to our country. And he's here for a program, a Veterans Day program for uh, at our school. And as we were leaving this morning, the Google Maps car pulls up to our house with the RV parked in front of it. So I just can't wait. I can't wait as a narcissist to go see my house and with the RV parked in front of it. So anyway, I thought that was the kind of thing. So Dad, I'm glad you're here. So thank you for being here. Um, fun little things to look at before we get going. Um, of course, this is the, uh, the the classic image of narcissism. It's what Charles put up on the website. Um, uh, Caravaggio's uh, uh, image of, uh, of, of, of Narcissus, the, the story of Narcissus, some of y'all are going to know it much better than I do, this is all I know, a uh, young man who was so beautiful, he was enamored with his beauty as he looked into a pool and he saw his reflection and he couldn't stop looking at himself, um, and so we have this idea of, a, of, a, of Narcissus just absolutely taken with himself, pretty apt description of so much of our own Life right now, I found this, and I love it because of its subtlety, this t-shirt. I mean, if you look at it, it's the mirror image of, of, of with narcissism written where you would have to stand in front of the mirror to see it correct, and <laughs> here I am. So it's a, I, I love the subtlety of this shirt. Um, a great portrait of, uh, of what a narcissist universe might look like. There I am at the middle in sort of the second orbit, stuff about me and my stuff. Third orbit, stuff I hate, because that's also pretty important. And then somewhere out there is an outlier, um, very small sort of Pluto. Others are <laughs> hovering somewhere nearby. Um, neat Venn diagram. I think uh, it's funny, but I think it's actually got a lot of, um, of truth to this, uh, where you've got sort of you know social media unlocking the awesome power of behavioral disorders as a counselor. This is pretty fun. Narcissism, ADHD, and stalking. Uh, and then you've got MySpace, Facebook, TweetTalk, and then Twitter right there at the middle. I don't know if some of y'all have been reading. Um, I think within the past month, a study came out, um, saw a couple of articles about it, where, um, where uh, uh, judged by a measure of any ability to, 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 to control oneself, willpower in other words, uh, amongst college students, they, 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 they what, made the decision the conclusion that uh, uh, college students that have uh, it's t they're twice as likely to succumb to the temptations to, to compulsively check their phones, their Twitter accounts, to tweet, their Facebook to update their um, they don't email anymore they just tweet and Facebook post than they are to, uh, to to resist even alcohol, cigarettes, sex, and so this compulsive behavior that's right here really is sort of breeding into narcissism and ADHD and and even sort of a voyeuristic stalking behavior. There's some truth to this is what we're finding out, and especially in the younger set, but, but it's bleeding over. Anyway, that's not really the point of the talk, but it was kind of interesting. Um, it's uh, spawned our narcissistic uh, human nature, which has been around forever, by the way. I mean, it's not new, nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes just said, but technology is certainly giving us a lot more opportunities. I mean, remember when we were kids, when I was a kid, you had to sort of take your, you know, 
camera with a bulb on it and sort of hold it out there and maybe do it. Well, now they make, of course, phones that are made for self-portraits. I mean, it's all, it's taken it to a new art form where um, narcissism is the new normal. I mean, the advent of phones uh, brings this right in to the point where I took a picture of myself a couple of days ago as I was working out <laughs> in front of the mirror, of course, because I wanted to see myself. Um, and this is, uh, this matters. Um, uh, uh, this did bring John Steinbeck into it, who once said, for the most part, people are not curious except about themselves. Um, I don't know when he said that. Of course, he's gone. But uh, it's not getting any better. Um, it's a statement of human nature. Um, continuing, this is often what happens when we stand in front of the mirror long enough. When men stand in front of the mirror and they think they see one thing, when reality is another. That is going to be sort of the overarching theme of the talk. But uh, Reality TV has brought in a whole new host of ways for, for narcissism to, uh, to find its way forward. There have been a lot of studies also about this, as you would guess. Who ends up on reality TV shows but people who tend towards narcissistic behavior, even that NPD, that narcissistic personality disorder that I watched. But it certainly scratches our need for narcissism and its close cousin to, to, uh, to be a voyeur of somebody else so that we can compare ourselves to them because that's... All that matters is where do I stand sort of in the pecking order. And so here's some of the examples. You can call this some of the aggressive uh, uh, reality TV shows that are out there, Bridezilla's, Hell's Kitchen. I did a quick Google search and found like a, I forgot what my query was, a list of reality TV shows, and I, I tried to see how many there were. I couldn't count them. I wasn't going to take the 20 minutes to do it. There are hundreds of reality TV show listings that are out there. Um, seen estimates somewhere between 50 and 70% of shows that are now produced are what you would call reality TV. Of course, Donald Trump, which a lot of people sort of armchair diagnose him as a narcissist with The Apprentice and all these kind of come under a Kurt Cobain idea. I don't care what you think unless it's about me. Um, that sort of aggressive narcissism that we see. Other... Uh, uh, Reality shows that have to do with beauty and talent and just um, uh, the need that I have to share myself with the world because I have so much beauty or I have so much talent that it would be a shame if I didn't share it with you. Um, we see lots of examples of this as well. Coming into an Oscar Wilde quote, which is great. Some people have this tattooed, I think, on them. To love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. Um, um, and never to be disappointed. And this last batch, um, just the train wrecks on display, and then we're going to be off the, uh, the AV part. Um, just, and, and, and I can look at this as a pastor, some of these next ones, like the Kardashians, um, Jersey Shore. Of course, I've never seen any of these. That's actually true. Um, and it's kind of sad. Uh, there was the, some of these, these train wrecks on display in the most recent Honey Boo Boo, where they're sort of the butt of the, the nation's joke. Um, uh, leading up to this great New Yorker cartoon where a man sitting there at the bar, you know, sort of the bartender's therapy. I'm nothing, and yet I'm all I can think about. That self-consumption, that, uh, that low self-esteem, which is masquerading as narcissism, or that narcissism, which is masquerading as low self-esteem, goes both ways. It really kind of leads to an idea that David Foster Wallace had when he wrote this um, about one of his stories, which I've never read, called The Depressed Person. This story, The Depressed Person, was the most painful thing I ever wrote. It's about narcissism, which is a part of depression. The character has traits of myself. I really lost friends while writing that story. I became ugly and unhappy and just yelled at people. 
The cruel thing with depression is that it's such a self-centered illness. The depression is painful. You're sapped and consumed by yourself. The worse the depression, the more you just think about yourself and the stranger and more repellent you appear to others. Where this, um, like the writer in Ecclesiastes described the making and the unmaking of a narcissist where it's just the self-consumption which you finally just keep bending and you keep bending and you keep bending going to get to a point by the end of the day to where God willing, and really mean that in the, in the uh, in the import of both of those words, God willing, we actually snap and are brought to the end of ourselves so that we in fact find good news on the other side of this narcissism. Um, so that's just kind of fun stuff to kind of let everybody finish eating and have a cookie. To kind of think about, it's not hard to think about how our society has become narcissistically uh, oriented. Um, three quick things today in their short time together that I'm uh, kind of thinking about in a way to sort of center up our issue. Um, uh, the first thing to describe something that I saw recently on Liberate um, on Liberate's website. I know David, you check that website pretty often. It's Tulian Chavidjan's website and something that John O'Linebaugh wrote. He's going to be here in Lent, in fact, this year. Uh, about Christian narcissism. I think Tulian wrote that. Uh, a second thing, uh, describing narcissism as, as just an aspect of laziness, that to be a narcissist, which we all are, to be self-centered is just the lazy, it's the path of least resistance, which is why we take that, a physical property. That's where the electrons will travel, and that's where I will travel too. Just take the most direct route. And it's just, it's just lazy. Uh, and then lastly, a quote from William James, an American um, psychiatrist and philosopher, in America, God is not worshipped, he is used. And so after we get under this idea of Christian narcissism and try to crack that code, and then underneath that a little bit further, uh, sort of seeing ourselves more clearly um, by in fact realizing that we're living beneath a fiction, that narcissism is lazy, ultimately how it affects our relationship with God is we see that God is not worshipped. In a, in a particular brand of American Christianity, he's used. We consume him as, as a commodity. Um, all this, the making and the unmaking of a narcissist. In, interrupt, of course, at any point. I'm going to kind of go through a lot here pretty quickly to try to get to the, uh, to the punchline. So Christian narcissism, what could this mean? Um, I know this is probably the thinnest ice that I'm on of the whole of this, uh, this brief talk. Um, but as I mentioned, it's something that Julian Chavijan did mention recently. What I think he means and what I'm getting at, what I would agree with, this idea of Christian narcissism are things that we often dress up in the church and call something good, when in fact it's something really insidious. You can call it sanctification. We could call it accountability. We could call it manning up and being men. We could call it anything else. But... Um, but it's still basically keeping me at the center of the equation. I am the subject of the sentence. Uh, one consequence of this is anytime I'm paying more attention or any attention to how I'm doing, it's Christian narcissism. Even if I'm thinking, how am I helping the church? How am I as a husband? How am I doing as a father? How am I doing at work? How am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? Now, there's something that's good about that. If there's an honest introspection that is being brought beneath the, uh, the correct judgment of God. How am I doing? Not good. Um, 
that, that there's, you know, hear me clearly, that's, that's a good thing. Um, we don't stand beneath the judgment of God enough. But most of the time, the way I find this, it's a, it's a self-aggrandizing, um, God might be my co-pilot, maybe he's not sort of form of, of, of do-it-yourself religion. It's religion. It's not Christianity. It's just me trying to take control of my own life with a little bit of sort of some God juice on the side. Maybe he's a steroid that can kind of help me through this. How am I doing? Oh, I probably need to do this, 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 and this. Um, And that's what my accountability group is telling me, et cetera, and so forth. It's still me being consumed with myself, which is creating a fiction. I'm going to keep that as a theme, this idea of this self-consumption um, why is it bad? Because it creates a fiction. It creates a life that's not actually truly lived as life actually is. Um, so this Christian narcissism, how am I doing, how am I doing, how am I doing, really is just a religious program where uh, uh, whether it's the church giving you instructions or you giving your instructions to yourself, hear what's pro- the wrong with both of those. Either the church or you are giving yourself instructions. There's nothing about God. There's nothing about Christ. There's nothing about what's been done. There's a lot more to be said about that, but I'm setting that up as a beginning uh, beginning way in. I said earlier that was the weakest part where I'm on the... Because there's a a whole other side to that, which is a a positive, but I'm going to keep that as a negative. Secondly, a consequence of, of, of this Christian narcissism are being consumed underneath a religious idea of Christianity, which I'm not a fan of, uh, it lets us slide easily and lazily into an easy compartmentalization. Compartmentalization of what? Mainly of God. We come out just like we program all these reality TV shows that I showed a few minutes ago, and we begin to program, um, we begin to program God into different things that we like and what we don't like. It's the tyranny of the like. Well, I really like it that God is merciful. Well, I really like it that God... Um, wants to have a relationship with me. Well, I really like it here, but I don't really like it that God has something called wrath, and I don't really like it that God might not be happy with me. I don't really like it that God um, might send people to hell. And so we start to pick and choose, and we're doing sort of the Thomas Jefferson program of just easy compartmentalization and picking out what we like and what we don't like, uh, which keeps me at the center of the equation. Who put me as the arbiter of God. Um, That's God's question to Job at the end of Job. Who put you in charge of the creation of the world? Where were you when I created the Leviathan and the deeps? Um, Where were you when I carved out the the Himalayas with my little fingernail? You know, who gave counsel to God? Was it you? Because I don't remember that, Job. You know, help me out here. Um, Christian narcissism um, often masks itself as a righteousness um, and as a... uh, uh, as something holy, but it's really, it's really me wanting to stand in judgment of God. As C.S. Lewis would call it, we put God in the dock and begin to demand an answer. Now that's natural. All this is natural. This is the natural religion of man because we come out with spina bifida and I begin just my whole life to bend further and further and further over to study my navel so that I can you know, say, hey, at least I'm lord of my belly button. Um, I thought that was funny. Um, but in fact, uh, what, what a what a false kingdom that is. So, um, Christian narcissism, 
this, uh, this dressing up in, in new clothes, the same old stinking bones of, of my, my, uh, my sinful and self-consumed self. The problem, it creates a complete fiction because this bent inwardness and this fascination and wonder at myself turns God into what I would like him to be and it removes from the equation what I don't want him to be. It lets me remain what I want to be and it calls sin something, anything other than what I want it to be. A few examples, that form of Christian narcissism allows easily sin to become uh, something like ignorance. Well, then if, if sin is just somebody who's ignorant because they don't know enough, well, that means the gospel is just education. And so let's get busy and just start educating people about who God is or about STDs or about uh, you know, recycling or whatever else it is going to be. Because if sin is just ignorance, we can fix that. Narcissism. If sin is just weakness, well, we need to get busy. We need to get Kevin Elko out here and whoever else Saban's got around and just start holding up four fingers and really get busy with a good program to build ourselves and make spirituality a gym and get a lot stronger. If sin is weakness, then the gospel becomes something that just strengthens. Where is anything with the cross in any of these statements? That's, and you can keep going with some other ideas about that. So that's my first bullet, this idea of... Um, uh, with an interesting stuff about me, I tend towards uh, narcissism, like all y'all do too, uh, and I want to dress it up. But um, as uh, as I am made and finally unmade, uh, I finally get exposed and realize, you know, my 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 best is filthy rags. Um, I thought, uh, as I was worried about how I was doing as Maymay's uh, husband, uh, was a good thing. In fact, that can be even even that can be self-consumption and faithless. Any comments on that? Any thoughts? Before I shift over, we're going to look at a behavioral economist from MIT, Dan Airely, somebody that I've really kind of been attracted to the past year, year and a half. Yeah, Rick? I, I, think, I think that's probably true. I'm, what I'm wondering is, how, how would you ever avoid that? I'm getting there. Yep, yep. So, Keep that word viewpoint, only viewpoint through you, because I'm going to hold up the disciples, especially the three of them, Peter, James, and John at Gethsemane, when they fell asleep, um, getting to, uh, to Simul Eustace at Peccator. So help me, help me stay on that. So. Um, narcissism is lazy. Um, Dan Airely is a, uh, is a behavioral economist. I don't have any reason to think he's a Christian. He might be, I don't know. Um, at, uh, at MIT, um, I've written, I've read a couple of things that he's written. Predictably Irrational is where this comes from. And he did a TED Talk, well, several years ago now, about how we are predictably irrational. We, especially post-Enlightenment and Americans, like to think that we have, uh, are kind of in charge of our faculties and that we're making decisions. It's an interesting sort of phenomena that I'm watching the past five or ten years. Um, neurobiology of all fields is becoming a place where, as Fitzsimmons Allison described, original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine uh, from the church's dogma. Uh, neurobiology is becoming the ally of that idea. Neurobiology is coming out with, with, with very interesting conclusions that we're not nearly as in charge of our choices and our decisions as we think we are. And, uh, and Dan Airely, in this TED Talk, 
point some of that out where um, narcissism as a laziness has a deadening effect. Um, that's what I'm going to call it. Just a, It's like a, a, a topical anesthetic where we, we don't see things the way we, they actually are. We have a perspective, Rick's good point, that a viewpoint where we think it's one thing when in fact it's something else entirely. And he has some good things to say about uh, a way that the Economist magazine marketed its subscription rates a few years ago and then what to do if you're in a position where you're bar hopping. I'm looking around to see if anybody, you know, most of us are married, so you, know, you shouldn't be doing that anyway, so stay out of the bars. Um, um, but here's, a, here's this Dan Airely talk. It's about four minutes, maybe three. <clears throat> he was burned some years uh, as a child, I think, and that's why he's got the disfigurement on his face. <clears throat> Here are two examples of this principle. This was an ad from The Economist a few years ago that gave us three choices. An online subscription for $59, a print subscription for $125, or you can get both for $125. Now, I looked at this and I called up The Economist and I tried to figure out what were they thinking. And they passed me from one person to another to another. Uh, until eventually I, I got to the to person who was in charge of the website and I, I called them up and they went to check what was going on and the next thing I know the ad is gone and no explanation. So, so I decided to do the experiment that I, do, I would have loved the economist to do with me. I took this and I gave it to 100 MIT students. I said, what would you choose? And these are the market share. Most people wanted the combo deal. Thankfully nobody wanted the dominated option that most <laughs> students can read. <laughs> MIT students, mind you. If nobody wants, you take it off. Right? So I, took, I printed another version of this when I eliminated the middle option. And I gave it to another 100 students. Here's what happens. Uh, now the most popular option became the least popular, and the least popular became the most popular. What was happening is that the option that was useless in the middle was useless in the sense that nobody wanted it. But it wasn't useless in the sense that it helped people figure out what they wanted. In fact, relative to the option in the middle, which was um, get, get only the print for 125, the print anywhere for 125 looked like a fantastic deal. And as a consequence, people chose it. The general idea here, by the way, is that we actually don't know our preferences that well. And because we don't know our preferences that well, we're susceptible to all of these influences from the external forces. The defaults, the particular options that are presented to us, and so on. One more example of this. Uh, people believe that when we deal with physical attraction, we see somebody and we know immediately whether we like them or not, attracted or not, which is why we have these four-minute dates. Um, so I decided to do these experiments with people. I'll show you graphic images of people, not real people. The experiment was with people. I showed some people a picture of Tom and a picture of Jerry. And I said, who do you want to date, Tom or Jerry? But for half the people, I added an ugly version of Jerry. I took Photoshop and I made Jerry slightly less attractive. The other people, I added an ugly version of Tom. And the question was, will ugly Jerry and ugly Tom help the respective uh, more attractive brothers? And the answer was absolutely yes. When ugly Jerry was around, Jerry was popular. When ugly Tom was around, Tom was popular. This, of course, has two uh, very clear implications for, uh, for, for life in general. Um, if you ever go bar hopping, who do you want to take with you? <laughs> 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 uh, 
you want you want a slightly uglier version of yourself. <laughs> similar, similar but slightly uglier. And, and the second point, of course, is that uh, if somebody else invites you, you know how they think about you. <laughs> what is the general point? The general point is that when we think about economics, we have this beautiful view of human nature. You know, what a piece of work is man, how noble in reason. We have this view of ourselves, of, of others. Uh, the behavioral economics perspective is slightly less... Um, generous to people, in fact, in medical terms, that's uh, our view. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there is a silver lining. Yeah. Um, he's really, he's, he's funny. Um, he's insightful. I think he's very insightful. Um, we don't see things as they actually are. We, uh, we think we are rational and we think we can make a good decision based upon the three decisions offered uh, for a subscription rate. But uh, take one thing out which you think is, is useless, and in fact it's hugely useful, especially to them as they want to sell a product for, what was that, you know, 100 and something percent higher than, than what the, uh, the other product was. It had a huge part. Over us, it sets things up, and that's just from an economic standpoint. How that relays itself into our relationship with God, where if I'm not who I think I am, and God isn't who I think I am, and what He's done for me isn't what I think I am, then it would stand. What then is truly true? Now that's just the that's just the hanging question I want to hold out there for a couple of more minutes. Um, Dan Airely and others, I think, can help us begin to. Uh, to pull that string tight to create some tension. Um, and then I think the very interesting way of, of thinking about Tom and Jerry. So, um, so if narcissism is first, there's a Christian narcissism, which is just stinking bones dressed up in new clothes. And there's the idea of a, of a, of a laziness in narcissism, that we're not nearly as in control of things as I think I am. And then very briefly, again, just to play this uh, William James quote out just a few seconds. In America, God is not worshipped. He is used. We use a commodity. We use a thing. And we've turned God into a thing. We turn God into a thing. It's not in past tense. Um, if much of what is offered is religion or Christianity, especially in the American landscape, then in some sense God is to be used. This is wickedly narcissistic. And, and Christianity becomes a marketplace where we're selling our wares, or where churches at least, are selling their wares saying, come to our religion, come to our theology, come to whatever you want to call it. We just exist to give you what you think you want. Well, we just saw that we don't know what we want. We don't know if we want the print subscription, the, uh, the online subscription, or the print and the online subscription. I don't know if I want Tom or Jerry until I see an ugly Tom or an ugly Jerry. I don't, I don't have a clue what it is that I want. And yet, if we so easily turn God into this commodity... And the church, into this, when we, the church, so easily prostitute and commoditize, to coin a phrase, ourselves, to, uh, to say, well, come use me. Come use me. I'm here to be used. That's, in fact, my raison d'etre. Why I'm here is to use you. And I'm saying that's patently wrong. So one extension I can find, or think about that, if, uh, if I don't know who God is, and I don't know who I am, and I use God rather than worship him, rather than being in a right relationship beneath him in a proper sense, 
Well, by extension, I would say, then I also use his gifts to me in a way that also is, uh, is um, wrong. Uh, you know, pick, pick one, pick marriage and, and, and children. Um, if, if I use God, well, certainly I would use you know, my wife and my children, too. How would I use them? I don't know, any one of a thousand ways. Some, some way to make me look better. Some way to advance me. Some way to, uh, to uh, uh, some way other than, I'll use them in any way other than what they actually are. Um, I'm just going to leave that out there and let somebody else make that connection. And that's not always true, uh, but think of it this way. I think probably for most of us, if a gunman came into our house and and uh, uh, and throws themselves in front uh, and, and, and is charging, we would throw ourselves in front of our children without thinking. Um, but the daily death of you know just showing up in their life and sacrificing in that way, you know, how many of us are doing that? How many of us are doing that well? And I'm totally speaking to myself. You know, it'd be easy to give my life literally for my child. It's a lot harder for me actually to like you know leave work on time to go home and you know be inefficient and listen to them try to do their homework and say, come on here. I mean, I could be doing so many other things right now. So um, I use them. I use them. Uh, so where does all this bring us? Rick, your good question. Um, where does my, what does my narcissism need? What, uh, uh, what do I do with this? If this was in the bookstore, in the Christian living section, how do I live with myself and this narcissism? Uh, in all these examples, whether it's um, narcissism is lazy, Dan Airely's examples, this Christian narcissism, that God is a commodity that I'm using much more than I'm, I'm, uh, I'm worshiping or that I see truly as he actually is, all these things uh, are the root of the issue, and all this is just a continued description of what the problem is. I originally, as an original sin, and instinctively and automatically relate to myself, to God, and to you narcissistically. Um, I relate to you as I want to see you. This is what the disciples did in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, um, took the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and said, come with me. Um, I need to go pray. And he, and, he, and he sat them there, and he says, stay awake and pray. And then he went a stone's throw away, and he prayed. And then he came back three times and found them asleep. Well, there's two perspectives to see the disciples, Peter, James, and John, that I think are helpful here. From the first perspective, a way to describe the issue again, our narcissism and theirs, uh, from the inside out, from their perspective, from our perspective, they have a completely overinflated and wrong view of themselves. They thought they could control their own behavior. They thought they knew which subscription they should, should sign up for. They thought they would know which Tom or which Jerry they would want to do. They had their earnest desire to please Jesus. They would have said, really, 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 I, I can do this. I really, really, really can. Just before, James and John had said, we want to sit at your right hand when you come in glory. They thought they knew what was coming, and they didn't have a clue. Uh, and their sincerity didn't matter. Um, they wanted Jesus. We want Jesus. And I won't go there because I didn't set that up, and it's not going to introduce a new part. That's their perspective. That's our perspective. That's the inside out. 
What's then, if that's a description of the problem, what's a description of what's been done? What's a, been, what's a description of the solution? The outside-in description. Uh, from the outside-in, God knows, and we can even see, because we've seen the unmaking of Peter, James, and John in their own narcissism. That's the benefit of the scripture. From the outside-in, we can see, in AA language, their powerlessness over their own selves and how their lives had become unmanageable. They couldn't stay awake for even an hour. It wasn't in their DNA to do it. Their sin was original to them. Karam Deo, before God, um, that's the shorthand Latin that the Reformers would use before this, Peter, James, and John needed to be saved from their failure and from their sin and from the just wrath of God. They failed They failed Christ in his hour of need. And that was a damnable failure. Um, A catechesis format would be helpful here. What are we saved from? What were Peter, James, and John saved from in, uh, in their failure in the garden? We are saved from sin and death, what I'm calling narcissism. Where does sin and death reside? They reside in me. Not outside of me. It's not something that the environment has done or poor education or uh, a spiritual weakness or a flaw which can somehow be fixed. Remember, all that's fictitious. It's in me. It's a part of me. For what do we need God then? If I use him as a commodity, what do I need him for? I need him only to save us. I don't need him as a companion. I don't need him as a friend. I don't need him as a counselor. I don't need him as a coach. I don't need him as an educator. I don't need him for anything else except as a savior, someone who can save me. And you could think, well, he could either bend me straight or he could just go ahead and finish the job and snap my back in half in this spiritual spina bifida that I have. What is he? Um, I'll continue that in a little bit. Our narcissism then turns God into something which we want to use. The good news, in a certain sense, and hear this closely, I'm going to see if I can say this right. In a certain sense, that doesn't matter. That I turn God into something to be used rather than actually is, it doesn't matter because God is not changed by what I do to him. Even though I turn him into a commodity, he remains some one, not a thing, but a one. He remains a someone who reveals himself and loves me to death so that he loves me to life. That's a good little phrase that is made up. God is not something to be used, but he is someone who first loves me to death so that then he loves me to life. Um, and this is where I'll try to find a way to close. Um, in all of this, I've been using this word narcissist. It's just the word sinner. It's what the Advent does. It's what we use all the time. It's just it's my sin which I bring forth to the table The only part I bring to the equation of my relationship with God is my damnable sin and my inability to stay awake with Christ even for an hour. That's all I bring to the table. Um, The only appellation I need is sinner. Paul said this in 1 Peter, um, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. So it's a good question. What adjective do you usually try to give yourself? Because we have tons of adjectives for Christian. We have a new Christian. You have a mature Christian. You have a serious Christian. You have a try-to-be-good Christian. You have a Christmas Easter Christian. 
all those are wrong. The only appellation we need is sinner. And so here, Rick, your good question. Um, what's the uh, what's the what's the way out? Um, what was uh, again a shorthand? Simul justus peccator in a, in a bald plug. Uh, a mug is coming out, which um, uh, uh, in the bookstore, which has the simul justus et peccator all over it, um, in t- just in time for Christmas, so you can pick it up soon. It's not here yet in the bookstore. Um, simul justus et peccator. It means at once um, sinner but saint, at once sinful but justified, and that's the way we go. Um, the only adjective, the one at the same time, that keeps us in a right relationship with God. I'll end on this. Karam Dio, before God, this was John O'Lineball on Liberate. Um, very helpful word. Uh, someone would ask, does that mean that before God I remain a sinner? And like, no, but beneath him, as he sees me, he only sees me either or and not both and. He sees me either as a peccator, as a sinner, or as Eustace, as justified. And for the so either I am a child of his wrath or I am a child of his mercy. God is extremely black and white in that sense. For the Christian, which is why the only appellation that matters is sinner, I am a redeemed sinner, and God only sees my redemption. What then is the why is the uh, why is the way out that tenacious holding on to, to the simul justus at peccator that I'm at once a sinner and a saint that's seeing all of this and his narcissism is lazy and everything else because that's then how I live it's the only pastoral response that we can offer ourselves or somebody else if we try to hold up anything other but at once 100% fully both of those things both and a sinner and a saint. It's a cruel word. God sees me only in my redeemed place. I am completely and 100% accepted and loved, loved unto death so that I would be loved unto life. But as I live my life day to day and know with the taste in my mouth of my failures, my hourly, my moment to moment, my nanosecond to nanosecond, inability to stay awake and to see things as they actually are. Because Dan Airely showed something phenomenal earlier, a little visual sight gag, where he said, look, this table and this table are actually the same size and they don't look it. And he showed it. And he said, what's interesting is as soon as you take away the ruler which demonstrates it, you go back to it and it's just like you never learned anything at all. What James says, um, we're like men who look in a mirror and as soon as we walk away we forget what we look like. I have to remember that I am a sinner in this, you know, moment-to-moment life, which leaves me 100% in that need of God, so that I don't see things fictitiously, that I don't see things like a God who is there to be used rather than worship as a gospel, which is something as trite as education about recycling or styrofoam use or something else like that, rather than the uh, the, the incredible news that God counts my sin as his and his righteousness as mine, which changes, which changes everything, which changes, which changes everything. I'm going to stop there. Um, our narcissism, our interesting stuff about me and each one of you. So any comments or thoughts? We've got a minute or two, and then we'll let that sort of hang up. Yeah, Stephen?
Yes, um, because he's a self-revealing God, and he gives me that, that sight. It's often born in suffering, that sort of you know, being loved unto death, that, that sort of snapping the back, uh, but, but not always. Um, at least an awareness of that weakness and that suffering, though, I think is the way through. But that's right. I think it's not only valuable, it's vital. Absolutely. I would have any more strong, stronger language yet. Not likely. What if we came to a men's ministry talk, not this one, but one that was actually really, really good, um, and, you had a th- and you had a thought that, wow, since that was so good, that'll at least give me enough juice to be a, a good man tonight. And then you go home, and whatever happens that always happens, happens. You know, the dishes are dirty, and the kids are snotty, or, you know, she doesn't give you enough attention, or you're tired at the office, whatever it is, then then what would this mean? If you don't, if you think that, well, now I'm going to be better, and you don't tenaciously hold on to any, you, you reduce all. That's fiction. The truth is, in this world, I remain 100% sinful all the time. It's not likely. It's it's a certainty. Um, but an equal certainty is, but God has done what he needs to do to fix that. Then, not letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing, and I don't say this enough, and I should. I should develop a greater vocabulary for this. <coughs> then something does change. It really does change. Then, when the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, meaning the right hand, say, uh, remembers, I am a sinner, the left hand walks into the house, and your kids think, you know, Dad's a little bit better tonight. You know, something's different about Dad. He's changed. Well, as soon as the right hand says, yeah, you have changed, well, now you're back into the old pattern again. Um, and so you've got to sort of hide from yourself in that sense. But the symbol Eustace at Peccator lets that happen. Um, that's another day. But uh, there is change. There really, really is change. But the only honest way into that is this, this both hand of Christian life. To change you. So, I'm in. That's why we say it here again and again. Until he snaps your back. So. I do too, and of course Don and Jane have a class on that right now. Um, uh, but he'll still keep loving you even if you stay in the same place. The disciples never got off the rock, not until Jesus came back, um, not until the Holy Spirit came down. Um, and then did they really? And then did they really? So. Didn't, you have, didn't you have Paul saying, why do I do the things I don't? Why do I do? Yeah. So. Let me pray, because I want to let people get to their office. So, Lord, for this... Uh, this day, give you thanks. Um, correct me where I was wrong, um, and Lord, where you spoke, anything which you would have us know, anything that was 
part of your true truth. I pray that you would strengthen that. Uh, hold it in your gracious and merciful hand and transform it into something that would uh, uh, return to you 30, 60, or 100-fold. Um, I pray this for the sake of, of, uh, of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you all very much. And happy to stay around for a minute or two, but um, just wanted to make sure that people who need to leave can go. So thank you all. So.